recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGunning at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 19th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. A dear sister in Britain sent me some um, publications. The Covenant Nations is a publication of the um, British World, British Israel World Foundation, and the Ensign Message. These are the most recent copies. The Ensign Message is printed by a group that splintered from the BIWF. I opened it up and I saw Clifton Emmerheiser's The Three Tribes of Judah, first article in a magazine. First article in the latest copy of this magazine, September 2013. Wow. This is July. I don't have the June Saxon Messenger out yet. Imagine that. Good thing it's not a news publication. The, um, it, it, it's ready and the articles are written. It just has to be put together. The Three Tribes of Judah by Clifton Emmerheiser. I'm going to have to check it to make sure they printed the whole thing. It's, um, I, I don't know if Clifton Emmerheiser belongs in the same magazine with turkeys like Jory Brooks, who's basically a um, Canadian BIWF universalist for the most part, or Pastor Ken Kimball, who published, um, who had printed in here this, this month an article about Esau despising his birthright. He talks about the microwave society. He doesn't talk about race mixing. That's incredible to write something about Esau despising his birthright, and there's not one word about race mixing. Okay. That's not, not much better than a Judeo-Christian Baptist or Southern evangelist. I'll be checking Clifton's um that they're printing of the three tribes of Judah to make sure that um to make sure that it's accurate because it surprises me that they're printing it. These people haven't been very kind to either Clifton or myself in the past. They won't discuss two C line with us. They they don't want to hear it. I'm surprised to see them print Clifton's article. I'm kind of pleased because um well well if they start looking into more of Clifton's work, maybe they'll get the whole Jewish problem because British Israel has traditionally believed that the Jews were somehow Judah. Uh, I mean, come on. By their fruits, you should know them. It's been brought to my attention that a certain person has left the Christogenia Forum and has stopped listening to these messages and otherwise participating, a person that had participated um, to a great degree the last two years. I mean, people come and go all the time. That's okay. I can accept that. I don't have a problem with that. I know that I'm going to offend people. That, that's my style, my attitude. I'm obnoxious. I'm arrogant. That's the way it is. This person says that she left because she has come to the conclusion that she is tired of hearing about race alone. That, that's not entirely true at Christogenia. It, it is the core of the message, though and that she wants to concentrate on so-called spiritual things, imagining what life may be in the kingdom of heaven and what our future is without God. This attitude is not a good strategy. While we certainly should all be engaged in prayer and have our sights set upon the hope to come, we are still in a battle stage of our existence here in this life on earth. And this is where Yahweh our God wants us to be 
Otherwise, we would not be here at all. The precise nature of our hope in the world to come is, for the most part, conjectural, which is why it feeds into some New Age garbage so easily. As the Apostle John had said, we are children of Yahweh, and not yet has it been made manifest what we shall be. A good soldier does not gloat over the unseen fruits of victory before the battle is won. If your general, who in this case is Yahweh God himself, has equipped you with the knowledge required to fight this battle, which we wage in the present time, how can you merely consider the spoils of victory? And while we certainly only have that victory in Christ, we are nevertheless to fight the good fight. One does not win the race by gloating over the reward. To those who would say that we have nothing to do but to attain our predestined place in the kingdom of heaven, I would answer this. If your destiny is to have no reward in that kingdom, then you are indeed describing just how you should achieve that destiny by claiming that we have nothing to do in order to achieve that destiny. By doing nothing more in the here and now than conjecturing as to what sort of reward you may have, you shall indeed have no reward. The scripture says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, at Micah 4.13. And that is the call which we all await. Only with knowledge in the word of God will Zion know what to thresh. It does not say, Arise, O daughter of Zion, and get in line for a handout. The harvest is great, and the workers are few. According to Scripture, the only valid ministry in this day and age, if indeed we believe that we are in the last days, is the ministry prophesied of that spirit of Elijah which is to come, as Christ has told us. And the duty of that ministry is spelled out in Malachi chapter 4, where it's clearly speaking of the times of trials in these last days. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. Think about Obadiah 1.18. And all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. Think about Obadiah 1.15 and 16 too. And the day to come shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And to borrow a line of all the other nations from Obadiah 1.16, they shall be as though they never existed. Malachi 4.2. But unto you to fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. The ancient Aryan phoenix symbol. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. As Malachi 4.13 says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. 
Remember ye the Lord of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The only valid Christian message in this day and age is therefore the message of white racial awareness found in Christian identity, turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. With this, we will commence the book of Acts, chapter 10. I thought I would be able to do chapter 10 in one night. I have 10 pages of notes here, and we might get halfway through the chapter. So this is the book of Acts, chapter 10, part 1. Once it is fully understood, within the biblical context, Acts chapter 10, above all other chapters of Scripture, exemplifies how so-called Judeo, or more properly, Judaized Christians, are willing to lift passages of Scripture out of their context and use them for the purposes of fulfilling an agenda. There are two agendas at stake here, both promoted from the account of Peter's vision by the mainstream churches which are the acceptance of universalism and the discarding of Yahweh's food laws. Upon our examination of this chapter, both of those agendas will be deconstructed. To begin with that deconstruction, we must note that there are several events described in the earlier chapters of the book of Acts to which many Judeo-Christians point in order to maintain their support of universalism. Yet none of those events truly uphold universalism once they are scrutinized. The men out of every nation in Acts chapter 2 were all Judeans. And although some of them were converts, meaning that they were circumcised, Peter, in his address to these men, only addressed the men of Israel in relation to the covenants and the promises for which one may compare Acts 2.14 and Acts 2.36, where Peter states that those things which transpired were for all the house of Israel. In Acts 3.12, regardless of who was present at the temple at the healing of the lame man, Peter again addressed Israelites specifically. While converts may have been considered Judeans in a religious sense, Neither Peter nor the other apostles could have been, could, could have considered them to be Israelites. In Acts chapter six, we see debates among Hebrews and Hellenists. The King James version translates the word as Grecians. However, it does not mean Greek. Rather, Hellenist in this context refers to one who was a Hebrew by race and who has adopted and followed Greek mannerisms, customs, speech, possibly even Greek philosophy as well. Paul again debates the Hellenists in Jerusalem, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 8, there is the account of Philip's conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, who was most certainly a Judean 
and not an Ethiopian by race. That's when Philip had found him. He was both reading from Scripture and returning to Gaza from Jerusalem, where he had worshipped. At this time, there were warning signs around the temple in Jerusalem, threatening death to anyone who was not a Judean who dared to enter. All or part of at least two such inscriptions have been found by archaeologists, and they stated in Greek, that no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. There is a copy of this posted at Christogony.org. The link will be with these notes. However, at that time, the term Judean was no longer a racial or national, but more of a religious designation, which would have included any circumcised Israelite, Edomite, or other convert, since Judea had become a multicultural, ethnically diverse political entity. But this issue of what a Judean was wasn't black and white. But the issue of who qualified to be a Christian certainly is. It is observed in the New Testament scripture, for instance, at Matthew 23.15, that the Pharisees at that time were proselytizing they were converting all sorts of people into Judaism. In that passage, Christ warns them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you go about the sea in the desert to make one convert or proselyte. And when it happens, you make him a son of Gehenna twice as much as yourselves. People professing the religion of the one true God who don't qualify for such a profession, who want the people who Yahweh chose, they indeed become twofold children of hell. It seems that after the absorption of the Edomites into Judea, recorded by Josephus, for instance in Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 9, or by Strabo in his Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, and mentioned by Paul, Romans chapter 9, after the conversion of these and absorption of these Edomites, anything became possible. And they used the baptism ritual. Baptism, not the cleaning of one who was already an Israelite, but rather, baptism seen as the mystical metamorphosis of one who was not, was an important part of such proselytizing. This errant, universalist idea was later brought into Christianity by the professional priesthood. However, it is quite contrary to where Malachi prophesied that John the Baptist would cleanse those who were already Israelites with his baptism. Specifically, Levites. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It would cleanse the sons of Levi. That's what's prophesied in John the Baptist. If he cleansed anyone else, it's simply collateral. Collateral advantage. In the case of the children of Israel, John wouldn't cleanse vipers. As we see in Luke 3 and Matthew 3. John Lightfoot, 
to 17th century cleric. In volume 2, on pages 55 to 63, in his commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud in Hebraica, I'm citing my paper baptism in what here, John Lightfoot explains the details of this proselytizing of the Pharisees, where he says, and I quote, Whensoever any heathen will betake himself and be joined to the covenant of Israel and take the yoke of the law upon him, John Lightfoot quoting the Pharisees from the Talmud. Voluntary circumcision, baptism, baptism and oblation are required. If an Israelite take a Gentile child or find a Gentile infant and baptizes him in the name of a proselyte, behold, he is a proselyte. First, you see baptism inseparably joined to the circumcision of proselytes. Secondly, and these are Whitefoot's observations, observing from these things which have been spoken, how very known and frequent the use of baptism was among the Jews, the reason appears very easy why the Sanhedrin, by their messengers, inquire not of John concerning the reason of baptism, but concerning the authority of the baptizer. Not what baptism meant, but from where he had a license so to baptize. Citing John 125, the Gospel of John 125. And Lightfoot goes on to explain that once a proselyte was baptized, he was considered, quote-unquote, an Israelite in all respects. This is what the Pharisees of the first century was doing. This is what Christ condemned them for. Yet it's the same attitude that all of the so-called churches have today, taking anyone at all in off the streets and baptizing them as Christians. However, simply because the Pharisees had made converts does not mean that those converts are also worthy of Christ. And we should consider that when we see the word convert in these accounts in the book of Acts. Some being lost Israelites and converting back to the religion of Judea, adopting the circumcision and keeping the Sabbaths, became Isaiah 56 Israelites. We'll discuss that more later when we approach the story of Cornelius later in this chapter. Peter's statement in Acts chapter 15, where he is referring to his vision and his conversion of the household of Cornelius, things which we are about to see here in Acts chapter 10, establishes the assertions being made here that none of these people brought to Christ up until this point were non-Judeans, were not of the circumcision, and very likely not Israelites. That very likely they were Israelites. But to this point, all of those who were earlier converted to Christianity were Judeans, meaning that they were of the circumcision, is established by Peter's words in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, at a meeting which occurred as many as 14 years after the events recorded here in Acts chapter 10, we can't really gauge them from this exact time, 
but they couldn't have happened too long after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. These events here in Acts chapter 10. So we have a good length of time to go to Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, Peter says, Men, brethren, you know that from the first days, Yahweh has chosen among you through my mouth for the nations to hear the account of the good message and to believe. With this statement, Peter could only have been referring to this vision and the conversion of the household of Cornelius. And the proof of this interpretation is in Acts 11.1. We're learning of this conversion of the household of Cornelius. It is said of the other apostles and followers of Christ, and I quote, and the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the nations also accepted the word of Yahweh. That the distinction was only a religious one is seen in Acts chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. And I quote, Then when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in with uncircumcised men and ate together with them. They didn't tell him you went in with non-Israelites and ate together with them. The distinction of Judean was religious. It couldn't be racial. Because Judea is a multiracial, multi-ethnic society at this time. Now, we do not see recorded in Acts those actions of Peter's which Paul had criticized him for, which are recorded in Galatians chapter 2, and which must have occurred even later, later than this event in Acts 11. Acts chapter 9 leads off with Peter and Joppa, the home of, at the home of Simon the Tanner, who had a house by the sea. After going to Joppa and miraculously healing a woman named Dorcas, the last verse of Acts chapter 9 reads, And it came to pass that he carried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Acts chapter 10 brings Peter further north to Caesarea, which was on a Mediterranean coast northwest of Jerusalem, but not quite as far north as Tyre. It was in the land of Samaria, which once belonged to the tribe of Manasseh, near the site of the ancient city of Dor. Herod had rebuilt the place called Strato's Tower, which was a short distance south of Dor a place that's obscure in the Old Testament and unknown by that name. It's a Hellenistic city, evidently. Herod renamed it Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar. It was sometimes called Caesarea Maritima, maritime Caesarea, being on the sea, to distinguish it from other towns bearing the same name, one in Anatolia and another in, in northern Judea. This Caesarea is not mentioned in the Gospels. There was another Caesarea, which was mentioned in the Gospels, called Caesarea Philippi, in the far north of Judea, inland, and very much near the ancient site of the city of Laish, which was later called Dan in the Old Testament, and which hasn't been seen since the Assyrian 
since the Assyrian destruction of Israel. Babo, and evidently also Pliny, had continued to call Caesarea Maritima after its old name, Strato's Tower. But again, by the second century BC, Dor, the famous ancient city of Manasseh, was an Edomite city. One of those taken by Hyrcanus, where all the Edomites were forced to convert to Judaism. Antiquities, Book 13, line 257. Dor is not mentioned in the New Testament. Josephus calls it Dora. Caesarea Maritima is evidently a cosmopolitan city, not a hundred years old at this time. And most certainly it had a mixed Judean population not unlike that of Jerusalem. This Caesarea is not mentioned in the Gospels. However, it is the place where Philip was last mentioned in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, and it is frequently mentioned later in Acts. However, Philip, even though Peter is in the same place a short time later, here at Acts chapter 10, or at the end of Acts chapter 9, Philip is not mentioned. He's not mentioned again after he converts the Ethiopian eunuch and ends up in Azotus and then Caesarea in Acts chapter 8. Philip the Evangelist, mentioned later in the book of Acts, is one of the six, or one of the seven, I'm sorry, one of the six who survived the son of Stephen and chosen it on. The men chosen to oversee the distribution of food to needy widows. With this, we will commence with Acts chapter 10. And a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, centurion of that cohort called Italian, pious and fearing Yahweh with all his house, doing many acts of charity for the people and making requests, making requests or begging or supplicating, and making requests of Yahweh continually. Saw conspicuously in a vision, as if about the ninth hour of the day, a messenger of Yahweh entering into him and saying to him, Cornelius, The cohort which Cornelius commanded was called Italian, ostensibly because it was made up of soldiers from Italy. The Romans commonly constructed cohorts or legions of foreign soldiers and used them overseas. Most of what the Romans called Italy was settled by Greeks originally, about the 7th, 8th century BC. And they too were considered foreign to the Romans and had been subjected to them. In his description of the first Herod's funeral, Josephus in Antiquities Book 17 lists bands or cohorts of Thracians, Germans, and Galatians in attendance. Josephus could identify from which region which had been conquered by Rome each cohort came from. That's one of the ways that the Romans held on to their empire by using soldiers from one conquered province to keep another conquered province in a state of tyranny. There's a phrase here that's kind of clumsy. 
that Cornelius' vision was as if about the ninth hour of the day. That's a very literal translation of the Greek words. The majority text wants the word rendered about, and therefore the words as if are translated in that manner. And that's fine. It's a valid translation. But the older manuscripts have the entire phrase in the Christian New Testament follow them faithfully, even though the reading is clumsy. Perhaps a better reading may have been perhaps around the ninth hour. Verse 4, and staring at him and becoming terrified, he said, meaning Cornelius, what is it, master? Then he, Yahweh God, said to him, or the messenger of God, then he said to him, your prayers and your acts of charity have been brought up for remembrance before Yahweh. The word anabahino is literally to go up. In the Yeager's tense, as Liddell and Scott have cast, it's used in a causal sense, to make to go up, the reason for the translation here. Verse 5. And now send men to Joppa and send for a certain Simon, who is called Petrus. Some manuscripts want that phrase, a certain the Codices, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus are split once again, probably about the fourth or fifth time this has happened in Acts. Those two manuscripts are the oldest of the great uncles, and in a lot of the books of Scripture, and not all of them, they're very consistent with each other. Verse 6, he is being hosted by a certain Simon, a tanner, with whom is a house by the sea. Now, the King James Version has a line inserted at the end of the dialogue of this verse, which says, He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. This line appears in only some late Latin manuscripts and a very small number of late Greek manuscripts. It's clearly an interpolation. Not that it really matters to Christian doctrine, but it's just another of... This one doesn't, but it's just another of hundreds of interpolations in a majority text, many which do matter to Christian doctrine. Verse 7. And as the messenger or angel, since here in a vision the inference is certainly that this is a supernatural event, it's daytime and Cornelius is wide awake, right? And as the messenger speaking to him departed, he called two of the household servants and a pious soldier of those who were with him constantly, one of his guard, right? And explaining all to them, he sent them to Joppa. We see Cornelius is described as a pious man. We see he prays to God. Yet, you know, I didn't include this in my notes in preparation for this program, but it's very clear in Paul's later ministry and his visits to many of the Judean assembly halls throughout Greece and Anatolia, that many Greek and Roman people have, had attached themselves to those assembly halls, had attended the services. Cornelius could have been one of those people. 
that's only conjecture, but it seems that the way he's described here is in a way which infers that he's very familiar with the, this religion which the apostles adhere to. And so they describe him as a very pious man. They don't belittle him as a pagan. They tell us that his prayers are made to God and not to some Roman idol. Like the Samaritans who were preached to by Christ, Cornelius, accepting that Romans were not circumcised, of course they weren't, Cornelius certainly fits the description of a lost Israelite given in Isaiah chapter 56, and I will read from verses 3 to 8. Neither let the son of a stranger, which means an estranged one, in the context of Isaiah it's referring to the estranged Israelites who were deported by the Assyrians. Neither let the son of the stranger that have joined himself to Yahweh speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated from me, separated me from his people. Now that line right there proves without doubt that the stranger is an estranged one. Proves without doubt that the estranged ones are Israelites because Israel was already separated from all other peoples at the command and behest of Yahweh. Israel was already commanded to be a separate people. So how could a stranger be complaining that he was separated from God's people, Israel? Only an Israelite could lament that. Neither let the son of a stranger that has joined himself to Yahweh, neither let the son of one of these estranged people, one of these people being put off from the kingdom for their sins, who has joined himself to Yahweh, speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch, somebody with no seed, because they're being put off from the face of Yahweh. Allegorically, they're eunuchs. Another way of referring to an estranged Israelite. Neither let the eunuch Say, behold, I am a dry tree. But I say, if Yahweh, to the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, the Sabbaths were only given to Israel, the law was only given to Israel. Psalm 50, Psalm 147, I think. Thus saith Yahweh unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. That's the old covenant. Only Israel could take hold of the old covenant. Yahweh speaking to the individual Israelites who went into the deportations and telling them they'll be rewarded if they maintain his law and his covenant and his Sabbaths. Even unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. Well, of course, they are sons and daughters already, but they're going to have a place and a name better than that. <coughs> I will give to them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
Also the sons of the stranger, the estranged one, that join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh to be his servants. Everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, or for all the people. Yahweh God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel. He doesn't gather anybody else. He gathers the outcasts of Israel, the eunuchs, and the estranged ones. Says, yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Here is the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah 56, right here with Cornelius, that the circumcised were being gathered to Christ, and now the outcasts of Israel are also being going to be gathered to Christ. Cornelius, being an uncircumcised Roman, was the son of one of the estranged ones, who, according to this passage, must have been an Israelite in the first place. Peter's vision was precipitated by the vision of Cornelius. And one vision could not be effective without the other. These visions had to be presented to each of these men in concert in order to put the two men together. Because neither of them would have been persuaded without such a vision of his own. Without Cornelius' vision, Peter's vision was vain. Without Peter's vision, Cornelius' vision would not have its fulfillment. Verse 9. Then on the next day, upon their traveling and approaching the city, Peter went up upon the roof about the sixth hour to pray. The Codex Alexandrinus has about the sixth hour, the day to pray. The time to us would be about 12 noon. The Greek hours of the day started at sunrise on the sundial, which they used. The Codex, I'm sorry, verse 10, and he became hungry and desired to taste food. And upon their preparing it, a trance came upon him. The majority text in the Codex Laudianus have fell upon him. The third century papyrus P45 has came upon him, but with a different verb than the other great uncles. Peter's hunger should not be confused with the reason for Peter's vision. And that seems to be exactly what the pork eaters, what the swine eaters are doing. They're confusing Peter's hunger with the reason for Peter's vision. God often makes challenges to us such as that in the scripture. There are many hurdles to cross such as that in the scripture. If the household of Simon the Tanner had not kept the customs of the Judeans, which would have included an adherence to the food, law, food laws, it is highly unlikely that Peter would have lodged there in the first place. Of course they kept the food laws. They're not about to serve Peter a hunk of swine. 
That's not the reason for his vision. Verse 11. And he beheld the heaven opening and the vessel descending, somewhat as a great linen cloth with four corners being let down upon the earth. And there are several variations of this verse among the manuscripts. The third century papyrus, P45, has, and he beheld the heaven opening, four corners being bound and some vessel being let down upon the earth. There's no reference to a sheet. The majority of text has, and he beheld the heaven opening, and descending upon him a vessel somewhat as a great linen cloth with four corners, being bound and being let down upon the earth. The Codex Ephraim Syria agrees, except that it wants the words rendered upon him. The Christogonian New Testament here follows the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Maldianus. The four-cornered sheet certainly has, as Clifton Emmerheiser has often pointed out, significance in the symbolism, the tribal symbolism of Israel. The four-cornered sheet is very much like the four-square arrangement of the 12 tribes of Israel around, in their encampment, around the tabernacle in the wilderness. Verse 12, in which were all the four-footed creatures and reptiles of the earth and the birds of heaven. And there are also some variations here. The Codex Ephraim Siri inserts and the beasts before the words and reptiles. The codices Laudianus in a majority text also have the additional phrase, but the word order is different. These manuscripts, these three, are closer to the Acts, the text of Acts 11.6, where none of the manuscripts noted here in Acts 11.6 have any differences. Regardless of the text of Acts 11.6, the text of the passage in the Christogonian New Testament follows the 3rd century papyrus, P45, and the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus being the oldest of the great uncle codexes. Verse 13. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, offer sacrifice, and eat. I know the King James Version says kill him, right? The final phrase may have been rendered more simply killing eat. And the verb thuo is often interpreted as kill in English translations, even outside of the Bible. However, the verb thuo, Strong's number 2380, means more simply, it means more than simply to kill as it is translated here in the King James Version. Ludell and Scott explain that the word, in its active sense, means to offer part of a meal to the gods. Ludell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon also explains that that was the only way in which Homer and the oldest epic poets used the word. By the time of Herodotus, it had a wider use, 300 years later, perhaps. Liddell and Scott also define it, number two, as to sacrifice by slaying a victim. 
and also simply to slaughter or to slay. And the word picked up that meaning from the sense of sacrificing by slaying a victim. It can also mean by itself to sacrifice or offer sacrifices. And we see that colloquially, suo simply, it, it came to mean simply to kill, but it fully means and originally means to sacrifice and then to kill in order to sacrifice to a god. And that's the definition we should accept because there were several other Greek words which meant to kill without the significance of killing for the purpose of sacrifice. Therefore, the Christian New Testament has here, arise, Peter, offer sacrifice and eat, not simply kill and eat. Now, considering the application of this verse, once it is translated in this manner, if we want to think that it may refer to food, we must not only imagine whether Peter would eat something in violation of Yahweh's laws, but whether Yahweh would accept something unclean for sacrifice in violation of his law. But there's a big difference once the word is understood, rather than just accepting that it means to kill it. When the Syrians defiled the second temple, circa 155 BC, they insulted Yahweh God by sacrificing a pig upon its altar. Josephus recounts that in both books 12 and 13 of his antiquities. Now, in truth, none of this is about food. But the corresponding vision which Cornelius received shows that it is about men. The act of eating being an allegory for the act of communing with uncircumcised men and transmitting the gospel to them. Verse 14. And Peter said, Not at all, Master, because not ever have I eaten anything profane and unclean. I don't take that to mean that he ate anything profane and unclean. I take that to mean that he never ate anything profane and he never ate anything unclean because the words have two clearly different meanings. The word rendered profane here, coinous, may have been rendered more literally as common, common and unclean. However, to the Hebrews, something common was indeed what we would consider to be profane, defiled. And the same word in the King James Version is rendered as profane in relation to Esau in Hebrews 12.6. There, Paul had considered Esau to be profane because he was a race mixer, a fornicator. He made himself common to the other races. He gave himself white Adamic flesh being holy. He gave it to the other races, and therefore he profaned or defiled himself. So Paul calls him a profane man and a fornicator. No 
note here that Peter used two different words, one which means profane or common, and the other word means unclean. And Peter's use of these two different words demonstrates that it was indeed a distinction between these words. That distinction is often missed. And therefore, passages which contain words such as profane, common, and unclean, or unclean, are often misunderstood. and have even been mistranslated. The word profane here is coinous, an adjective, and the verbal form of this word is koinal, K-O-N, K-O-I-N, short O, long O, Strong's number 2840, which appears in verse 15, the next verse that we are going to present. And the verb means to consider or to deem something profane or common. And therefore, Hebrew would not accept it, right? According to Liddell and Scott, the adjective coinous means common, shared in common, common to all the people, common, public, general, and that's what it meant in, in, in secular Greek. And used of meats, common or profane, and they cite the New Testament. And the verb koinal is to make common, to communicate, to defile, or to profane. Foods, which were declared edible with the Old Testament, having been sanctioned in the law by Yahweh, were able to be sanctified at a Hebrew altar and table. These foods could not really be considered unclean. And things deemed unclean by the law could never be sanctified at a Hebrew altar and table. So there's a difference between things that are profane or common and things that are unclean. Note that Peter here says both common and unclean, or profane and unclean. Things which were not sanctioned in the Old Testament yet which other peoples were accustomed to eating, such as swine or shellfish, certainly were considered unclean, and they were never considered to be food, and they should be rejected as food today. No cleansing ritual could sanctify them, and therefore they were not merely profane or common, but they were unclean and never to be considered for consumption. Now, things that were considered foods, that were sanctioned in the Old Testament, but which were handled or killed in a manner contrary to Old Testament law, especially meat sacrificed on the altars of idols, those things were considered common or profane, but they weren't considered unclean. An ox, which is a clean animal which may be eaten, can't be considered unclean. It's clean in the law. But if it's sacrificed on the altar of an idol and killed in a manner not prescribed by the law, say it's strangled, then it's considered 
common or profane. It's defiled to the Hebrew. But a pig sacrificed, I don't care how much you cleanse it, a pig sacrificed on the altar of Yahweh can't be considered clean because the pig is unclean. It can't be sanctified, and it's not sanctioned by the law. This concept is important in understanding many New Testament passages. I'll be covering it again in depth when we get to Romans chapter 14, and again at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to understand what Paul was really saying. He wasn't telling us we could have a slab of pig's ass at Christmas dinner. Now, this is a distinction which the King James Version often failed to make in translation. It's these things which Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 14 and in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. Yet the King James Version in Romans 14, verse 14, twice the word coinus is mistranslated as unclean. It should instead have been rendered profane or common because unclean is akathartus. Strong's number 169. Akathartus literally means unclean, as it is in this verse here, Acts 10.14. Paul never told the Romans or Corinthians to eat unclean things. Unclean things were not food in the first place. Swine is not food. And it can't be sanctioned as food. It can't be cleansed. It can't be sacrificed. It can't be sanctified. But an ox is clean, and it can't be unclean. A steer is clean, and it can't be unclean. It can be profane. It can be defiled by being um, improperly handled or by being sacrificed on a pagan altar. That makes it profane or common. It doesn't make it unclean. Paul was telling those early Christians not to worry about eating things that were common or profane. Since if they had been mishandled or sacrificed to idols, it really didn't matter because idols were not to be accounted by Christians. That's what Paul was teaching. But the King James comes along and destroys Paul's teaching by taking a word twice, which means common or profane, and translating it as unclean. Now here, since Peter's vision refers to man and not to food, considering the instructions given to Peter here by Yahweh God, they must likewise be applied to man in the manner which they would be applied to food which is evident in verse 15, the next verse, where it says, And a voice again for a second time to him, the things which Yahweh has cleansed. That's the whole key right there to understanding Peter's vision. The things which Yahweh has cleansed, you do not deem profane. With his answer, we see that Peter should not deem as profane that which Yahweh had cleansed. 
However, by the law, only things which were able to be sanctified under the law could possibly be cleansed. Well, Peter mentioned things profane and unclean. Yahweh God is not concerned with the unclean. That's not part of his answer. He's only concerned with the profane. Things which are unclean by the law, beasts which aren't clean are unclean. Beasts, beasts of the field, Negroes, you can't clean them up. You can't clean them according to God's law. Things which are unclean by the law cannot be cleansed. Orientals, don't try to make it on Christians. You can't cleanse them. But things which may be profane, but which are clean by the law, those things can be sanctified. No act of ritual cleansing could cleanse a pig or a dog, but you can clean a sheep. By the law, only Israel is sanctified to Yahweh. And therefore, only Israelites can be cleansed or deemed clean or considered to be clean. Which under the law may include other Adamic people who join themselves to Israel in accordance with the law. However, not even that is in accordance with the promises. To understand what Yahweh has cleansed is to understand the entire reason for Peter's vision. And for that, one must return to Old Testament prophecy. In the Old Testament, the only promises of cleansing any people whatsoever are those promises made to the children of Israel, which state explicitly that the children of Israel would be cleansed by Yahweh and nobody else. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. And verse 18, after many other exhortations and admonishments, Come now and let us reason together, saith Yahweh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, meaning white, meaning they will be cleansed. Verse 25, and I will turn my hand upon thee. Let me read from verse 24. Therefore saith Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. They can't be cleansed. And I will turn my hand upon thee, meaning the children of Israel, and purely purge away thy dross, and take away all thy sin. I'm sorry, ten. And I will restore thy judges as at the first, 
and thy counselors is at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgments, with judgment and her converts with righteousness. Israel who turns back to Yahweh are the converts. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 27. I have seen thine adulteries and thy nayings, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thine abomination on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem! Wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? A promise of cleansing to the people of Jerusalem, the Israelite people of Jerusalem, for the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah verse 33, a promise of cleansing to the captivity of Judah and Israel. From verse 7, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. That cleansing was on the cross of Christ. The next passage is long. I'm going to include the entire passage in my notes. It's all important. I'm only going to read the highlights from Ezekiel chapter 36 from verse 16. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries. According to their way and according to their doings I judged them. For I will take you from among the heathen or from among the nations where they were scattered and gather you out of all countries and I will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. That cleansing, we will see when we get to the New Testament passages in reference to this, that cleansing is in the word of the gospel. Verse 29, Ezekiel 36. I will also save you from all your uncleannesses. And verses 32 and 33, 32 in part. O house of Israel, thus saith Yahweh your God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the wastes shall be built. Joel 3.16 is a mistranslation of the King James Version in verse 21, referring to murder, referring to violence, referring to the sins of Israel and Judah. Verse 21, the word blood should mean bloodshed. It's in the plural. It's very evident in Strong's and in the Septuagint and in the New Testament that the word blood in Hebrew in the plural is an idiom for bloodshed when it's used in these contexts. 
Joel 3, from verse 16. Yahweh also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but Yahweh will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am Yahweh your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of Yahweh, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Sounds like Revelation chapter 22, right? Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. For the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will cleanse their bloodshed that I have not cleansed, saith Yahweh, for Yahweh dwelleth in Zion. Here the animals in Peter's vision do not represent foods, but rather they represent uncircumcised Israelites. Yahweh God, through Yahshua Christ, had cleansed the outcasts of Israel on the cross as he had promised. He promised it. In Isaiah, in Ezekiel, he promised it in Jeremiah several times. It's probably in all of these prophets several times. It's probably in some of the other prophets. But it's a cleansing that's only promised to the children of Israel. Where Yahweh says, do not consider profane what I have cleansed, it can only be a reference to those children of Israel who were promised cleansing of their sins in their redemption. Yahweh had cleansed the outcast of Israel on the cross, and Peter was not to consider them to be profane, circumcised or not. It didn't matter at this point. Many of the Greek tribes as well as the Romans, the Celts, the Parthians, and the other Germanic tribes, all descended from the lost Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. And the migrations of Israelites from Palestine over the centuries leading up to those deportations, the Danans, the Dorians, the Trojans, the Phoenicians, who emigrated from the 15th through the 8th centuries B.C. over a period of over 800 years. These had long ceased following Hebrew custom and were considered unclean by the Judeans who adhered to and also added to certain interpretations of the Old Testament laws. Peter received his vision for the express purpose that he should preach the gospel to these people. The writers of the New Testament as well as Christ himself recognized and professed that the cleansing referred to here in Peter's vision was that same cleansing prophecy to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. John 15, the words of Christ to the apostles. You are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Although it's evidenced in John chapter 13 that Judas Iscariot could not be cleansed wasn't an Israelite. 
1 John 1, verse 7. But if you would walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son, Yahshua, cleanses us from all guilt. 1 John 3, from verse 1. Look at the sort of love which the Father gave to us, that we should be called children of Yahweh, and we are. For this reason, society does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of Yahweh, and not yet has it been made manifest what we shall be. We know that if he is made manifest, we shall be like him, since we shall see him just as he is. And each who, having hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. We purify ourselves with the word of God. He who loves me keeps my commandments. Come out from among them. We'll be reading that shortly. Romans 2.12, Paul. I mistranslated Paul in the King James Version. For as many as it's done wrong without the law, without law, then they are cleansed. And as many as have done wrong in the law, by the law, they will be judged. Paul's comparing Judeans and Greeks. Those who reject Christ in favor of the law shall be condemned by the law. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 17, on which account come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the impure, do not be joined to the unclean, and I will admit you, the impure, the unclean, are all those who were not cleansed on the cross of Christ, since only Israel was cleansed on the cross of Christ, and true Christians are commanded to be separate from them. Even as Peter says, we're to be a separate people, a peculiar people, a holy nation. Ephesians chapter 5. But just as the assembly is subject to Christ, in that manner also wives and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has also loved the assembly and had surrendered himself for it in order that he would consecrate it. Why did he surrender himself for the assembly, the assembly being the children of Israel? In order that he was consecrated, cleansing it in the bath of the water and the word. Immersion in the word of God is the true baptism. And we'll see as much in, one, in, in Peter's words in Acts chapter 11, Titus chapter 2, Paul of Tarsus. Verse 13, expecting the blessed hope and manifestation of the honor of the great Yahweh, even our Savior, Yahshua Christ, who gave himself over in behalf of us in order that he would redeem us from all lawlessness. Paul can only be talking to Israel. He can't be talking to anyone else. And may purify for himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And Paul again in Hebrews chapter 1 from verse 1. On many occasions and in many ways in past times, Yahweh had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. At the end of these days, he speaks to us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all, to whom he also made the ages, who being the radiance of the honor and the express image of his substance and bearing all things in the word of his power, bringing about a purification of errors or sins 
It sat at the right hand of majesty in the heights. How could Paul not be talking about that same cleansing of sins that Yahweh promised Israel in Jeremiah? How could Paul not be talking about that same cleansing of sin which Yahweh promised Israel in Isaiah? How could Paul not be talking about that same cleansing of sin which Yahweh promised the children of Israel in Ezekiel? Paul in Hebrews chapter 10 substantiates that. Therefore, brethren, having liberty into the entrance of the holy places in the blood of Yahshua, by a new and living way through the veil which he has consecrated for us, that is, of his flesh, and the great priest over the household of Yahweh, Amos 3.2. Israel is the only family Yahweh knew in all the earth. We should approach with a true heart, in certainty of faith, having purified the hearts from a wicked conscience, and having washed the body in pure water. We should hold fast the profession of the expectation without wavering, for he making the promises trustworthy. And we should consider one another in regard to the stimulation of love and of good deeds, not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together, as is a habit with some, but encouraging, and by so much more as you see the day approaching. Paul is saying it's the body of Christ, not your personal body. The body of Christ, the anointed people, the household of Yahweh is washed in allegorical pure water. The same pure water that Paul was talking about in Ephesians. In, verse five, in chapter 5, verse 26 of Ephesians, where he said that Yahshua consecrated the assembly, cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word. That's the pure water Paul talks about here. The body being the body of Christ, the allegorical pure water cleanses it by the blood of Christ and the gospel. Hebrews 13.12 On which account Yahshua also, that he would sanctify the people through his own blood. What people? The people of Israel. People, not every people. He didn't sanctify the world. He didn't sanctify all peoples. He sanctified a specific people. The people, the people of Israel, the people to whom this was promised. that he would sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. All of this is talking about that same cleansing before the cross of Israel only in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and many of the other prophecies. And after the cross in Ephesians and Hebrews and Romans in the Epistle of John, in the Gospel of John, it's all only talking about Israel, and it's all talking about the same cleansing. Yahweh cleansed Israel on the cross. Yahweh is telling Peter not to deem profane that which he has cleansed. Even if Peter didn't understand it right away, he surely did later when he wrote his epistles. He surely did later when he wrote, not to Jews, not to the circumcision, 
Peter's epistles are written to the uncircumcised. That's why they survive. Peter's epistles are written to the assemblies throughout Anatolia, assemblies that Paul of Tarsus founded. And that's why Peter, in his second epistle, which is written to the same audience as his first epistle, in his second epistle, that's why he's fortifying the writings of Paul. That's why he gave his stamp of approval on the writings of Paul, because he's writing to assemblies which Paul had written to in the past, assemblies which Paul had founded in both his epistles. And he's telling those people that they're to be a peculiar people and a holy nation, that they are an elect race. He's talking to the outcasts of Israel. Seeing this, we should know that the admonishment is still valid. Where it is recorded at Matthew 7, 60, Joshua had said, you should not give that which is holy to the dogs, nor should you cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them with their feet, and turning they would rend you to pieces. However, just like Israel is considered a stranger and a eunuch, and eunuchs are accursed in the law, in Isaiah 56, Israel is likened in the vision of Peter's, Peter's sheep to every foul beast and reptile and every sort of animal that's unclean. But it only represents the children of Israel and Yahweh deemed them cooked. Yahweh deemed them cleansed. Which again can only refer to the children of Israel. Any honest examination of Peter Shi does not uphold universalism. Because Peter should only deem as clean the thing or is sanctified the things which Yahweh has cleansed. Verse 15. Verse 16. Then this happened for a third time and forthwith, or immediately, the vessel went up into heaven. And we see once again that Peter had to be told everything three times. He had to deny Christ three times before the cock crowed because he was being arrogant and claiming that he would never deny Christ. Christ told him he would never forsake Christ. Christ told him, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. And Peter still didn't get it until he denied his Messiah the third time. Once Peter denied his Messiah the third time, then, according to all the gospel accounts, only then did Peter realize what he did. You think he remembered the words of Christ the first time or the second time. Only on the third time did he remember the words of Christ and realize what he did. In the last chapter of the Gospel of John, Peter had to be told three times. 
to love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times. Peter got annoyed. Peter was the stubborn apostle. Here he had to be shown a vision of the sheep. Three times. God knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. Verse 17. Then as Peter was perplexed, the Codex Bethlehem has became perplexed. There are also some minor variations in verse 16. I neglected to mention, but they're not really important. Then as Petros was perplexed with himself, what the vision which he saw could mean, or literally could be, behold, the bizarre text has then behold, along with some of the other appeals. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, asking around for the house of Simon, stood by the gate and calling out, inquired, if Simon, who is called Petros or Peter, is a guest there. That Greek word, diarotau, is to ask around for in this translation. It only appears here in the New Testament. It means to ask constantly or continually. It draws the picture that the men were asking as they passed through the town where the house of Simon the Tanner was. Verse 19. And upon Peter's considering about the vision, the Spirit said to him, so even though Peter was shown this vision three times, he still had to be told what it meant. The Codex Vaticanus wants the words rendered to him. The meaning is still the same. And upon Peter's considering the, about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. So arising, get down and go with them, not making any distinction because I sent them. The Codex Vaticanus doesn't have three men. It has two men which is perhaps an error in, in transcription, but is also possibly interpreting the soldier in verse 7 as being one of the household servants. That, that's a possibility, reading the Greek. Verse 7 states that Cornelius called two of the household servants and a pious soldier of those who were with him constantly. Now the Codex Beze and the majority text upon which the King James is based have no number here. Behold, men are seeking you. This version of the same account, provided in Acts 11.11, gives the number of men as three, and the number there is not disputed among the manuscripts. Most of the oldest great uncles have three here. Peter had his vision at precisely the time when he needed it right before the men show up. If it were not for the vision, Peter may never have even admitted these men into the house. They would be identifiable as Romans as soon as he saw them. The words of the Spirit to Peter, not making any distinction because I sent them, prove without doubt that the admonition for Peter not to consider common the things which Yahweh has cleansed applies to people. And only the people. It doesn't apply to food. 
we can refer to the food laws, as I did throughout this exposition, and consider the food laws to understand what's common, what's unclean, what can be sanctified, and what can't be sanctified. But the real key to Peter's vision is to understand verse 15 and to go back to the Old Testament to see what Yahweh cleansed on the cross of Christ. And he only cleansed the children of Israel. The words of the Spirit to Peter, not making any distinction because I sent them, prove without doubt that the admonition for Peter not to consider common the things which Yahweh has cleansed applies to people, only to people, and specifically to Israelite people. And in actuality, it has nothing to do with food. Yet, there are grown men today claiming to be readers of the Bible who cite Peter's vision to justify their consumption of every vile and unclean thing, including ham sandwiches. With that same justification, millions of so-called Christians eat a slice of pig's ass in the name of the Lord on many Sundays and holidays. And in actuality, they blaspheme his name by blaspheming his word. This is a signal example of just how an agenda can blind a man to the truth. Note that Peter had spent over three years with Christ and also saw him on several occasions after his resurrection and ate with him. Yet Peter still followed the Old Testament food laws. Peter never imagined those laws to be done away with. His own initial impression being that the vision which he experienced here had something to do with food, since he was hungry when he first went up to pray and a meal was being prepared for him at that time. His first reaction was that he never ate anything common or unclean. Verse 21. And Peter, going down to the man, said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. For what reason is there on account of which you have come? The King James Version has here. And Peter, going down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius, said, And those additional words appear only in the Codex Mutinensis, which is a 9th century uncial and a small number of later minuscule manuscripts. Another example, this again being a harmless interpolation, it's still another example of the many interpolations that work their way into the majority text or into the King James Version. This interpolation is not found in most manuscripts of the majority text. It's only found in some. Evidently, some which the King James translators use also. Verse 22. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, the Codex Beze has a certain centurion, a man righteous and fearing God and accredited by the whole nation of the Judeans, was conferred with, conferred with, 
by a holy messenger or holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words by you. Therefore, inviting them in, he lodged them. Now, if it weren't for his vision, Peter wouldn't have invited these men. Cornelius needed his vision to send men to Peter. Peter needed a vision from God to be told to accept those men. The Codex Beze has here been leading them in Peter Lodge them. The Codex Laudianus then calling to them he lodged them. Slight differences in the manuscripts. The Greek word Zenizo, Strong's number 3579, appears four times in this chapter of Acts, and it's rendered three different ways. Here in the active voice, it's to lodge. The other three occurrences are in the passive voice. It's to be hosted in verse 6, where lodged would have also been appropriate. And in verses 18 and 32, it is to be a guest. It means to be a guest. The related Greek word is xenos. The adjective is xenos. Strong's number 3581. Which is only one of several Greek words translated as stranger. I'm sorry, it's a noun. It's only one of several Greek words translated as stranger in most New Testament translations. Xenos actually means a guest or a guest friend. As Liddell and Scott define the word. Xenos is not a stranger as in the sense of an alien. And the word xenizo here, which is the corresponding verb, Strong's 3579, means to lodge a guest, or it means to be hospitable to one. Or used in a passive sense, it means to be a guest in somebody else's home or at somebody else's expense. Xenos means a guest or a guest friend, and that's how Liddell and Scott define the word, because it refers to someone who has an expectation of hospitality. If you read the um, Harvard's Loeb Classical Library, a gentleman by the name of Kovacs, I think he's a professor at the University of Virginia, he recently, meaning the 1990s and, and early 2000s, he recently translated a new translation of the works of the tragic poet Euripides for the Harvard World Library. And the word xenos appears very often in the writings of Euripides. And wherever Kovacs this contemporary professor at the University of Virginia, wherever he encountered the word xenos, he translated it as guest friend, not as stranger. Because a xenos is someone with an expectation of hospitality, sometimes through a treaty and sometimes for other reasons. A xenos is a person who... Uh, an, uh, an outsider who comes into your 
town or your home who has an expectation of hospitality. A Zenos is not a racial alien or somebody who is simply unknown. The use of the related verb in this chapter four times illustrates the meaning of the noun. With this, we will close the first part of our Acts chapter 10 exposition. And we'll be here next week, Yahweh willing, with Acts chapter 10, part 2, and probably get into Acts chapter 11. Many parts of, well, the beginning of Acts chapter 11 is directly related to um, Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. I didn't make the chapter divisions. I only have to verify them. I will be here tomorrow night with a topic that I'm really not happy that I have to do, but I have to do it. I'll be here tomorrow night with Addressing the Shills, part two. I'll be here next Friday, Yahweh willing, with Acts chapter 10, part two. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh.